podcastjuice.net. The planet is restless, Captain. They want their podcast. And they shall have it. I'll beam down to the surface. You have the bridge. Captain, that is illogical. These are Trek fans. They will challenge and dissect your knowledge with great emotion. It is a mission fraught with danger, peril, and grave risk. Suggestions. Send in the red shirts. Senior officers report to the ready room. The red shirts are back in action. Before we get into what we are convened here for today, let me introduce my crew. And that would be, let's, we're going to start off with Craig J. How are you, sir? Very well, thank you. I'm assuming everybody preferred the introduction from the last show. Speaking of that, <laughs> listen, mister, I don't know if that beard is regulation. Oh. And trim those, all right. trim those, trim those, um, trim those sideburns. All right. Yes, hey, Captain. Rick can have a beard. He can have a beard. Now, let's get on. Let, let's go to the next crew member. That would be Mr. Big Sexy. How are you today? I'm grouchy. So in other words, it's just a regular day. <laughs> well, listen, listen, crewman. I don't know how many well, times, I don't know how many times I have to tell you, but there are no Dabo girls allowed in my ready room. <laughs> now you leave your big sexiness on your own quarters. Well, you know, me and Lita had a thing going on. You know, we're still wait a minute. Oh, you, oh, you were seeing Lita? Uh, let me go. Let me go holler at her real quick. What's going on? <laughs> I thought I was on anyway. No. <clears throat> so. <laughs> The one thing I wanted to bring up, we, we, we should probably talk about it on, on, on the next show, is that <laughs> rumor, strong rumors have it that somebody is going to make a prequel to The Wrath of Khan. Uh, that, that seems rather interesting, although I'm not exactly sure where they're going to go with that story. Yeah, do, I mean, do we really need to see a prequel to The Wrath of Khan? And also, remember, they're marooned on a planet, so what do they do? What is the show? What's the show about? Well, wait, what I, I thought what I read was... And I just glanced at it. I thought it was Khan prior to, like, during the eugenics wars. Oh, right. Okay. All right. Fair enough. But still. But, no, 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 no. That's not fair. That's not fair enough because the Feder Earth hadn't entered the Federation yet, right? Mm, I'm not sure about that. This happened in 1996. Now, when did they enter the Federation? I don't think it was 1996. Uh, they entered the Federation shortly after the events of First Contact, right? Where they, where we see uh, Zephyrin Cochran go up into his warp, his short trip using right. warp drive, right? Yeah. I would assume, and there was a world. Well, wait a minute. We know that there was a world war, or something like that. Was it the Eugenics War? I gotta look this up. I gotta look this up. But my point is, is that if it didn't happen before Earth into the Federation, I guess they could do it, and it could be tied into Star Trek. Because the Federation was in existence before Earth entered it, obviously. Mm. But do we want to see that? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it 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 wouldn't be Star Trek. Exactly. Because if there's no Federation, um, he's just a tyrant. Uh, you know. So yeah. But then, you know oh, well. what, correct, that brings up another question. <laughs> if 
the Federation, I'm assuming the Federation was in existence prior to Earth joining. But the one thing that tells me that it, it was not in existence prior to Earth joining is that Starfleet headquarters is on Earth. Mm. So are, oh, we that's to, true. are we to believe that if the Federation existed prior to Earth's entry, that they said, ah, Earth, that, that looks like a nice planet. Let's move everything down there to San Francisco. Mm. I'm just reading something online. I, I think it's this is all rumors, of course, but it's saying here the TV series will reportedly follow Kirk's greatest enemy as Khan and his followers struggle to survive on SETI Alpha 5 after the crew of the Enterprise leaves them there. So, like oh. I said, that's even so. Same point. Like, what's what could be going on down on that planet that's so exciting? Yeah, what I don't see. <laughs> are there any stories there that we, they're trapped? Is there's no conflict other than what is created between them? Between well, each look, other. It'll, it's certainly going to be a survival story. There's no question about that. It won't be Star Trek because it's it's a survival story, and um, they managed to survive in this extremely hostile environment. I get that. So, but still, if they do it. Who are they going to get to play Khan? Because even if the actor was still alive, he'd be too old to play young and young self. So I don't know. I mean, only thing I can see is based on Star Trek Two. It'll be episodes of them playing checkers and capturing those little <laughs> SETI Alpha eels. Yeah, and putting them in people's ears. Yeah, and none of that do I want to see. <laughs> It's sort of like you know when the when Battlestar the, the the reboot of Battlestar Galactica finished and then they created a separate series called The Plan. I'm not familiar with that. Mm, it, it was essentially a prequel to Battlestar Galactica, and okay. I don't believe it it lasted very long or it wasn't as popular because people were just essentially saying we don't care about we we understand what happened before. Battlestar Galactica, we don't need to have you act it out and tell the story. Sort of, I feel the same about a, a possible prequel of The Wrath of Khan. I can, my mind can imagine what they were doing on the planet for all those decades. You, you, there's really no need to tell that story. There's not. There's, I don't see what the story is to tell. You have a self-contained group of people, maybe 20 at the most. How many stories can you tell with them? I don't know. I mean, certainly the Khan is going to be um, very bitter and uh, single-mindedly wanting to get off the planet and kill Kirk, which is what he eventually tries to do in the Wrath of Khan. But maybe they could, if, by the way, we're talking about something that doesn't even exist. So if it's true, then it'll have to be a story about maybe there's actual other people on that planet that they interact with. Maybe there's a struggle there. There's yeah. some fighting that goes on, you know. But yeah, yeah, that sound that seems obvious. Yeah, you're right. But again, I don't want to. I don't care about those people because <laughs> they don't <laughs> affect what I know and love. They don't affect the main storylines. They have to do with the Federation and Starfleet. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So. Oh, All right. Well, so I'm we're gonna the main show then. We're gonna put that in the bull <laughs> category for now, <laughs> and we're gonna move on to the main topic of today. Uh, today we're here to talk about um, what might be a controversial topic. Hey, I, like I've like I'm afraid of controversy. I was bold enough to say that we should stop hating on Star Trek Nemesis, and in that same tone, I'm here to say, let's make the case 
that Star Trek 3 Search for Spock is actually the better of all of the Star Trek films with the TOS crew. I said it. I said it. But before we get into that, we're at the point of the show, the, the new segment where we correct all of the wrongs from the previous show. <laughs> the and, <Fox> segment. <laughs> and I am going to fall on the sword and say that during the last show, we spoke about, um, what did we speak about on the last show? Not the nitpick show, but, um, oh, the Discovery, the new Discovery trailer and all the stuff that was coming out about Discovery. And I mentioned that there weren't a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, I don't know if I just misspelled Star Trek when I was on iTunes trying to find the podcast, but I spelled it the right way this time, and wow. Okay, (laughs) yeah, there are quite a few. So, So, listen, we have to get on our game. We have to get into battle stations. We have to cut through all of those podcasts out there, and this is going to be the show to do it. Now, do I have, do I have your loyalty? Now that sounded like Trump, didn't it? Oh God. <laughs> anyway, yes. Today we're going to talk about Star Trek Three. Now, I think, and I assume you guys would agree with me. We're we're older truckers, and I think it's pretty much acknowledge that Star Trek 2 Wrath of Khan is the best of all of the Star Trek films. However, I submit that Star Trek 3 should be given a shot at being considered the best of all the TOS films. And I will mention that USA Today, USA Today, they praised Star Trek 3 as the best of the three and the closest to the original spirit of the television series. Now, come on. It doesn't get any better than that. We're talking about USA Today, and they even said it is closest to the original spirit of the television series. I mean, I don't know. I mean, so you guys, if you disagree with me about that, you're going to have a hard uh, uphill battle because I've got USA Today behind me. First of all, I didn't even know they were still publishing. Wow. Not only are they still publishing, but you can get them online. Far out. Did not know. Well, he said far out. Okay. <laughs> yeah, this okay. This is gonna be a good one. All right. That's gnarly, dude. <laughs> okay, l- listen. <laughs> Back to your posts. Um so Star Trek three, just a few tidbits of information here. It was produced and written by Harv Bennett. Search for Spock opened on June first, nineteen eighty four. I believe it had a sixteen million dollar budget, and that is just to think that sixteen million dollars. Wow, there's no way you could do a film like that for sixteen million dollars nowadays. But um, and it's well, first... you, but if, but if you extrapolate sixteen million in nineteen eighty four dollars to what it would be now, how much would it cost? How much would, it, would that be? I don't know. Uh, I I would say today to do a movie like that, you're looking at eight, you know 100, 120 million. But I don't think sixteen million would translate into that. No, no. The film gross, and this seems to a little bit too much of a coincidence. I don't know if these numbers are right, but it grossed over $16 million from almost 2,000 theaters across North America. It went on to gross $76 million at the domestic box office with a total of $87 million worldwide. Now, here's where I might have a little battle on my hands. Critical reaction to Search for Spock was positive, but notably less so than the previous film. 
Reviewers generally praised the casting characters while criticism tended to focus on the plot, which I don't understand for the life of me. But I just want to, uh, I don't want to dominate the conversation here, but I just want to give you a couple more uh, frames of reference. As we know, Leonard Nimoy, longtime character uh, actor in Star Trek, played Spock for I don't know how many years. It was rumored that he wanted to be killed off, which is why we saw what we saw in Wrath of Khan. But uh, seeing the final cut of that film, he became excited about playing Spock again. And when Paramount asked him if he wanted to reprise the role for the third feature, Nemo agreed and told them, and this is a quote, you're damn right, I want to direct that picture. Oh, God. Studio, <laughs> Studio Chief Michael Eisner at the time was reluctant to hire Nimoy because he mistakenly believed that the actor hated Star Trek and had demanded in his contract that Spock be killed. Nimoy was given the job after he persuaded Eisner that that was not the case. Here's what I, I like about Nimoy's approach. Nimoy wanted the search for Spock to be operatic in scope. He wanted the emotions to be very large, very broad, life and death themes. And the look of the film and everything about it derives everything from sizable characters playing out a large story on a large canvas. And I have to say, I can't agree with him more. I watched this movie last night because I've long thought since I first saw it in 1984 that this movie is the closest thing to Shakespeare in a science fiction property that I have laid eyes on. Let's just go around the table real quick. Uh, Craig, you've seen the movie. What are your thoughts about the movie in general? I remember seeing the movie when I was a kid, and I remember really, really enjoying it. But as the years have gone on, I, I sort of forgot about that movie. And I just hung my hat on Star Trek Six and Star Trek Two, but I watched it today. And besides the fact that there's some famous people in there who went on to do other movies later on, I thought the the movie was very emotional. It was very a, a very emotional movie, and I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, and I can understand why people think that it's a contender for the best Star Trek made, or at least better than Star Trek Two. I totally understand that. It was a very well-made movie. The story was great, and it was very emotional. It really pulled you in emotionally. You know, I've seen it several times as well. And let me go ahead and put on my my black uniform today because I'm going to be the bad guy. I always thought and still think that the whole plot of the movie was so contrived you knew at the end of two that Spock was coming back. You knew it. Because of the way, especially back in 1984, of the way this cast, other than Kirk, has really been, you know, identified with this property. You know, a couple of them have done other things here and there, but not with a lot of success. You know, Kirk did, what was it, T.J. Hooker? Right. He was so macho in that. But you knew Spock was coming back. And then all of a sudden, I don't, I don't want to move too far ahead, but when the movie opened up, you see the lens case, you know, coffin on this planet. You know he's coming back. So it's like, okay, what are we searching for? We know where he is. But I but, digress. I guess I don't get... Of course we know he's coming back. Now, you do realize that uh, Superman's going to be coming back 
in the yeah. Justice League. Right? We we know when he dies at the end of Batman v Superman that he's coming back. I, I I'm how is but that again, a fair criticism? They're, they're saying this is a search. How can you search when you know where he is? Now, have they like lost him? For instance, I'm gonna you know mix my generations here. Have they lost him in like a wormhole? And you gotta go look for this cat. Fine, you lose him in you know in the past, like that. Uh, oh God, Time Terror <laughs> episode. Fine, but you shot you shot the body out of the ship. You know where he is, so it's not much of a search. So are you, t- Craig? Do you hear? Wait a minute. <laughs> are you saying that your problem with the film was that they called it the search for Spock as opposed to the retrieval of Spock? <laughs> That's the problem. Star Trek Three Resurrection, you know, or Rebirth. Fine, but search search implies we're going to do something. We didn't do. Shit. We went to we went to where he left him. Oh, there he is. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I, I, this is blowing my head open. So, that's your problem with the movie, among among others. Yes. Okay. Go ahead, Craig. But you know, I, I think just because I rec- I saw it recently today, actually, they when they shoot that torpedo to the planet, they expect it to burn up in the atmosphere because that's what normally happens on the planet. But they explain in the movie that the planet was going through gravitational flux, and so therefore it, it made a soft landing. So I think at the end of Star Trek II, nobody expected there to be actually a coffin on the surface of the, of the planet. Does It didn't make sense then, but it makes sense in when they explain it. Um, but I think the search for Spark, of course, is Kirk's search for Spark, ultimately. Well, now, the thing is, when the, when the Enterprise arrives back in the space dock, and that that uh, admiral comes, uh, the admiral gives them a rundown or debriefing. Kirk says that he was hoping to get the Enterprise back and uh, refitted right away, so he could go back to Genesis. I'm sorry, Mr. Scott, but there will be no refit. Admiral, I don't understand. The Enterprise is not. Jim, old. the Enterprise is twenty years old. We feel her day is over. But we had requested. We had hoped to take her back to Genesis. So that indicates that he never was thinking that the torpedo tube was going to burn up on reentry. Right? Mm, maybe. I, no, I don't think so. Because when Sarah comes to his quarters, Kirk still says, well, I didn't see him. So, you know, Kirk's gone. I mean, Spock is gone. He, he seems to acknowledge that. He doesn't know. He does. He's not aware that he may be alive. That's true. You're, you're, you make a good point. So then, my question is: Why does Kirk say I wanted to go back to Genesis? What, what was his thinking then? I, I assume that's because he wanted to go and see if he could retrieve Spock. So hey, uh, you, but you do bring up a good point because you know Kirk states that he saw no future for Spock when Sarek asks him, why didn't you bring him back? You ruined his future or something like that, Sarek says. And Kirk says, I saw no future. So then why, what was on his mind when he wanted to go back to Genesis? Was it just to retrieve the body? Which doesn't make sense because they put it in a torpedo. They put Spock in the torpedo tube. They tend not to retrieve bodies when they do that. So I don't know, maybe one of our listeners can explain that to us. It seems like it's... um. A conundrum or maybe 
um, an error in the writing. Who knows? But also, so getting back on you, Big Sexy, um, what other issues do you have? I mean, give me something a little bit of more substance other than the title was messed up. You know, the way that they had McCoy carrying around Spock's mind slash essence. Come on, man. Come on. That, has that happened before or since in a Star Trek film? It has not. Let me ask that for you. No, it has not. Which means it was some bull. Well, wait a minute. Well, we... <laughs> what? Well, listen. We do know that Vulcans are powerful telepaths. Yeah, telepaths. Just yes. because we haven't seen what they can do doesn't mean it can't be done. So, to me, the question is, this new stuff that they're that they're introducing into canon, does it make sense? And that makes sense to me. Just because I haven't seen it before, it's, it's forgive the pun, it's logical that they might be able to do that. And when they get to Vulcan for the Faltor Pan, uh, I forget the, the high priestess's name, the one who, who does it, who transfers the body, the mind back into Spock. She says, you know, what you're asking to be done, Sarek, is something that is hasn't been done for eons uh, uh, since the beginning of time or something like that. She makes it clear that it's not something that's regularly done. And another thing, now that you got me started. <laughs> See, you started it. You, you did ask, now I'm going to answer it. So we got McCoy carrying around the Spock essence, for lack of a better word. But then when we get to Genesis, you know, we have this teenage Spock just screaming all over the place. Uh -huh. So why, why don't Spock's, or why doesn't Spock's essence also de-age? You know, you just can't have the body. What do you mean? You know, all the he, he regrew on Genesis. You know, he went through Ponfar and all that, and they get him back at the end of the movie. Hey, he's full grown Spock again, and he's back to being an old guy. And we and we put his essence back in. I, I'm, I, so what's the what's the criticism there? You lost me. It's just so convenient. <laughs> it is convenient. What are you talking about? Have they made Spock? Had they made Spock when they brought him back, had they made him a, a younger person under that set of circumstances, would make sense. But the... You sure you but saw they, the movie? <laughs> I'm looking at it right now! You know, Hold they, on. they rapidly age him up back to where he was when he you know, died at the end of 2? Big Sexy. And you're trying to say that 3 is a better film than 2? Big Sexy. Please. Big Sexy. Spock was... Because his body, his, his corpse was on Genesis during part of the Matrix forming and, you know, reconstituting all the molecular structure and DNA of the planet. Yes. He was tied into it. Into Stop that. Right there. He's tied into it. Then why wasn't he absorbed in the planet during its rebirth? What do you mean absorbed into the planet? If this planet is going through, I'm looking at it right now, going through this molecular change, uh -huh. anything on the planet that would be a foreign body to the planet, i.e. the lens case, what would happen to that? Wouldn't it be absorbed and broken down into component elements? Why? Well, the, the planet is comprised of a lot of organic elements like trees, plant life, flora, fauna. Those weren't broken down. So why and would so he be he, broken down? Why wouldn't he? he so then why, so we why would restart he? His, we restart <laughs> his entire gestation period You know, from the tiniest organism, and he just grows into this. 
and they explain was what was what type of template or direction. Craig, come on, man. <laughs> I mean, I can't, I, I can't, uh, you know. Look, it is science fiction, so I guess we're gonna have to believe that the, that it happened. It's just the way it is. I mean, there's there's tons of science fiction. I think we watch that is somewhat implausible. But I, I, I got I got sucked in by it, so I just thought, all right, fine. The, the planet is is regenerated him, and uh, he's and they do explain that the planet is aging in in bursts, right. and so the, you know he, he keeps getting older and older and older because he's and yes, it was convenient that they took him out just at the time that he looked at the end of Star Trek too. I mean, yeah, sure, but you know, now, yeah, I'm not saying it's a bad movie by any stretch, but I'm not, but it's not better than two. No, no. Well, that that's that's the subjective opinion. I understand, but what the things you're bringing up, there are objective explanations for, and that the the main one, which is why my head is blown open, is that the reason Spock is aging so rapidly, and they explain it in the movie, is because the planet is aging rapidly, and he is still part of that matrix that was formed by the Genesis device. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he's aging. With the planet. That's why uh, Savik says we have to get him off the planet. Otherwise, he's going to continue to age. Now, yeah, if you want to be a stickler and say, oh, they took him off right at the same age as, as uh, <laughs> that he was in Wrath of Khan. But we really don't even know that, to be honest. We don't know that he's the same age as he was before he died. But, I, you know... You, don't you have to be fair in your criticism? I, I'm just pointing out little things, that's all. Now, now here's an unfair criticism. I didn't like the actors played Savick. Didn't like her at all. Why not? You know what? Vulcans have a certain appearance and whatnot. And that that bouffant hair she was rocking. Nah, man. But why did so? But Kirstie Alley had a, a bouffant hairstyle too. She was a Vulcan. Kirstie Alley. Yeah, but she was hot though, so that's not that's a count. <laughs> oh my God! Wait a minute, hold on, stop the show. <laughs> uh, now, you know, you guys, uh, the listeners won't know this uh, know this reference unless you get the show from podcastjuice.net. But this is your to the south moment, dude. <laughs> Are you saying you didn't realize that Kirstie Alley was playing a Vulcan in Star Trek Two? I I just forgot. It just it slipped my mind. That's all. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. Good. <laughs> As long as you admit it was a mistake, I'll let it go. I, I, will, I will own that. That's not okay. A All my question right. is, why did Kirstie Alley not come back and reprise her role? What is this BS? I have the answer to that. Oh, okay. I'm, right. I'm glad you asked. So what? Kirstie Alley, who had played Savik in The Wrath of Khan, did not return to reprise her role because she feared being typecast. Ugh. Please. Well, fair enough. Fair Robin enough. Curtis had arrived in Los Angeles in 1982. She became friends with the head of Paramount's casting department. <coughs> casting couch. <coughs> <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. Who hey, recommended Christopher her? Christopher Lloyd wasn't typecast. He went on to be Doc. So, hey. Say again? Christopher Lloyd. Well, no. I think. Was he. Oh, he hadn't already starred in uh, Back to the Future? Uh, wasn't no. that the year before? Okay. Yeah, I thought that was 85. That was 85? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're right. 85. No, you're right. I mean, he was known for Taxi at that point, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And he did a successful stint on Taxi, and um, I. But you know, he was solid enough. I, I, I here's what I'm trying to say. I don't necessarily blame Kirstie Alley 
Christopher Lloyd was already um, established as a solid guy after all those years on Taxi. So to do the Klingon thing was probably a good idea for him so he wouldn't be typecast as a drunken guy from Taxi and get all these roles that make him out to be a souse or a drunk or, a, you know, ne'er-do-well. So it made, I could see him playing this Klingon role to break out of Reverend Jim, if anyone remembers that from the the great comedy taxi from the early 80s. I do. And by the way, I thought that he was an excellent Klingon. Yeah, he was. I thought he was too. There's a comedian around this time who did who does a joke where he, he says, can you believe Christopher Lloyd was a Klingon? And he does an impression where he says, uh, oh, he did, he does a uh, uh, Krug as, a, as Reverend Jim. He says, okay, Kirk, uh, I want the Genesis device. You're not going to give it to me? Okay, doc. <laughs> now he does it better than I do but it was hilarious I understand why Kirstie Alley felt the way she did she didn't want to be typecast because she didn't have an established body of work like uh, Christopher Lloyd did prior to doing Star Trek no. so no. but I mean it is always jarring it's like the whole Darren thing on Bewitched and the Lionel thing on All in the Family into the Jeffersons you know, it's just it's, it's a little disconcerting when you just stick another act, actress or actor into a role that has been established. Um, but having said that, what did you guys? How did you guys think of what did you think of Robin Curtis? Now, Big Sexy, you said you hated her. Well, she didn't really stand out, man. You know, but I her mean, character was hard to written, do in this film. Among her, written, this cast. her character wasn't written to stand out. She did what she was serviced. She did what she was serviced to do, or or written to do. Well. That's what we got, a serviceable performance. What do you think, Craig? <laughs> uh, look, I mean, I, you know, once I got over the disappointment that it wasn't Kirstie Alley playing Savick, um, I thought she was okay. She didn't have a big part. She she played her part well, I thought. I just thought Kirstie Alley, she didn't have the, the, the arched eyebrows. All she had was the pointed ears. And she, so I, I, she, I didn't buy her that much as a Klingon, as a Klingon, as a Vulcan to begin with. I thought Robin, if I had my druthers, I think I would have rather have seen Robin Curtis uh, playing Savik in Star Trek Two. The other thing, but the the one complaint I do have about the the character, the character, not the actress, is that they rewrote the character because in Star Trek Two. The thing that made Savik so unique was that she was that young lieutenant bucking for captainship and always quoting the rules, going by the book, you know, mm. being a stickler. This um, this Savik is nothing like that. As a matter of fact, uh, Captain Esteban on the Grissom, the, the, the starship that gets destroyed by the Klingon, by uh, Krug, he tells her repeatedly... Follow the follow orders. Don't do anything stupid. Don't do anything that's gonna. I'm I'm sticking my neck out. Follow follow regulation. Where she should be the one saying all that stuff. So I, I did have a problem with that. They kind of rewrote that character. Any thoughts? Did anyone else notice that? Mm. I, I did not notice that. Yeah, not did I actually. But you're right now that I'm, that you bring it up. Well, all right. So since we're talking about some of the actors now, <clears throat> I just want to run down this list. Um, William Shatner obviously reprised his role as Admiral James T. Kirk. 
Shatner remarked that being directed by Nimoy, his longtime co-star and friend, was initially awkward. I don't know why it would be. It seemed like it would be comfortable. Uh, although, as the shoot went on, it became easier as Shatner realized how confident Nimoy was. Now, they, they throw a little shade at Shatner. If you're listening, uh, almighty oh, oh Shatner, this is not coming from me. Uh, to reduce weight, Shatner, uh -oh. Shatner dieted before the start of production. But as filming continued, you know this is not going to have a good end. <laughs> as filming continued, he tended to slip. The costume department had to make 12 shirts for him. So <laughs> wow. I don't know why they felt the need to throw that in there. <laughs> also, um, there was a this little blurb here about um, DeForest Kelly. He was also a little nervous about being directed by, um, by Leonard Nimoy. I just find that odd. I mean, you've been working with this guy for years. Seems like you would be more comfortable having him direct you, wouldn't you think? Mm, well, I mean, someone going from a fellow colleague to now basically directing you, they may, maybe they did not know what his directing prowess was at the time. I thought he was a good director based on oh, the movie. Clearly he was. Now, was this his... Um, I wonder if this was his first directing debut. I know he, di he did um, Voyage Home. Hmm. My question is now he also directed and it was a success. He did Three Men and a Baby, I believe. Really? Yeah. He directed that with Tom Selleck and uh, I can't remember all the other actors. But I wonder which came first. I believe Star Trek came first. I'm going to look this up real quick. Star Trek came first. Yeah, Star Trek came first. It sort of reminds me a little bit of um, that parody they did on um, In Loving Color in The Wrath, the Wrath of Farrakhan. Right. Where, uh, <laughs> where, where, Spock, where Spock says to Kirk, hey, I'm a better director than you. <laughs> and Kirk grimaces. <laughs> well, yeah. <clears throat> One of these days we're going we're gonna to review Star Trek V. <laughs> mm. You know, maybe, maybe we don't want to let William Shatner hear that one. <laughs> but, um, all right, so... I'm going to get into, I'm going to make the point as to why I think Star Trek 3 should possibly be considered a better film than Star Trek 2. I think Star Trek 3 is far more epic. I think the scope is epic. I mean, to me, outside of um, uh, First Contact, where we have the theme of uh, Captain Ahab chasing his, his white whale with Picard and the Borg. This this movie most strongly demonstrates on a Shakespearean level what will a man withstand or what will he go through to for loyalty, for honor, for 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 basic foundational friendship. And in this movie, we see. Well, let me back up. I've said this before. I'm gonna say it again. And you guys feel free to chime in as I'm going. Captain Kirk is a mother Whoa. <laughs> and I mean that as a compliment. Don't with Captain Kirk. <laughs> okay? And I've said this so many times. Yeah, I might say that Picard is my favorite starship captain. But that's because... That's like asking me, who's my favorite president? <laughs> and, you know, you got Washington. You got uh, Lincoln. You got all these guys, founding fathers, whatever. 
You got to put them aside, all right? Just like I, you got to put Kirk aside. No one can touch Captain Kirk. And by proxy, no one can come close to what William Shatner did for Star Trek. And all of that is on display here. This is a guy who will ride or die no matter what. So even when the movie starts off, everything, it starts off in a, in a contained box. And the box slowly grows bigger and bigger. It's kind of hokey. But the, but, the, but the message is clear. We're going to see the growth of an individual and what he goes through by the end of this film. So what does he go through? He risks his um, Starfleet credentials. He's willing to he's willing to put his friends on the line, his crew on the line. And in one of the best scenes of any Star Trek film ever made, he loses his son. I mean, I can't put in the words how how grand that made this movie and the themes of this movie for me. Just I don't know how to describe it. Just what he goes through. Oh, and he loses his ship. He destroys yeah. his ship all for the love of a friend. And to me, now, I'm looking back at Star Trek II. Yes, yeah, Star Trek II, you had Khan kind of uh, playing that same role where he had a singular focus, singular vision to get Kirk. And in Star Trek... And, and, and it's fully act, it's action laden. Most, I mean, it's it's uh, very um, visceral in its action. But then you move to Star Trek Three, where Star Trek Two is a more action oriented film. Star Trek Three is contemplative. It's uh, great tragedy. It's operatic, as Nimoy said, and it makes it shows you Kirk almost displaying calm like focus. On getting the job done but because he's the good guy and because he's on the side of right he succeeds where Khan fails because he still makes the right decisions he's in it for the right reasons so to me all of that grand scale is what I was why I say Star Trek 3 really I think it might be the better film from a thematic standpoint and from uh, 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 like a, tr- a tr- tragedian if that's the right word Tragedian Tra- arc. Tragedian. I think that's a word. <laughs> I think that wow. makes it the film to beat in terms of Star Star Trek TOS film series. What? Come on, guys, get at me now. Get at me. Well, Q. In order to get to three and the tragedian, whatever the hell that means, <laughs> effect it has, you have to get to two, because let's face it, one was crap. I don't, so two, I don't, I don't, I don't recognize that motion. But okay, <laughs> no, one wasn't crap. One, one was good. It was good. Is stretching. Ah, uh, yeah, Craig, you, don't help me, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna say it was good. It was good if you are a true diehard trekker. It was good for the nostalgia and for getting these characters back. You know, getting the band back together, for lack of a better phrase. But two really established it. And so two allowed them and you know Spock who did direct it or Nimoy who directed it to build off of that and to go 
and and do three. Without two, three can't happen. It can't. Well, because to... you don't have the, the, the groundwork to build from. Now, I will give you this. You know, three was more, you know, grand in its thematic presentation. And two was more action-packed. But two was really more, at least in my view, something that really established these characters. Like, one was like, one, we're not even going to reference one. One doesn't count. Two was the one that really got this thing started so they could build off of it and then get into three. But to me, that's like saying The Dark Knight is not a better film than Batman Begins because without Batman Begins, you don't have what built up to The Dark Knight. And I think we would all agree that The Dark Knight is a better film than Batman Begins. Well, or- origin stories for me just don't do anything for me anyway because I already know the origins of these characters. So, But put aside the origin factor. I'm saying... You don't. I, I don't see why you say that a film, a, a preceding film, can't be better, because the film that came before it built up the conditions for the preceding film. Rocky Two was better than Rocky One. Well, I, I think you could argue. You might make an argument that it wasn't. Well, that, that's a good, actually that's a good point. I would say Rocky Two is much more visceral and action and comic book oriented than Rocky One, and I would say the same about Star Trek Two. Great yeah. film, but it's much more of a comic. If if, if I have to describe, I'm, I'm using hyperbole. It's more of an action-oriented comic book film than Star Trek Three. Star Trek. Here, here, here's the analogy for me. Star Trek Two is a quick game of checkers, whereas Star Trek Three is a contemplative game of chess. That that's how I see it, and I don't. I think wouldn't it, give it checkers, but I would definitely give three chess. Well, right to me, it's it's a thinking. It's more of a thinking man's Star Trek, and you could say that Krug is a two dimensional character because, as good as Khan was, I think he was still very two dimensional. He saw only development about him was he had to get Kirk, and by way of getting Kirk, he gets the Genesis device. Doesn't make it bad, but there were so many more layers to the conflict that Kirk goes through in Star Trek Three. And maybe I'm being unfair. I'm putting Kirk. As proxy for Khan, where maybe Krug should be proxy for Khan, but Krug is almost non a non-starter. Or he's while he's a good Klingon, he's a good foil to Kirk. But it allows us to see Kirk to explore Kirk's psyche. Um, and I don't know if I'm putting it in, into words, but I just don't think it's fair to say you know it can't be better because it wouldn't be there if not for Star Trek Two. Craig, what do you think about that particular? criticism of big sexies it would be a fact to say that star trek 3 continues the end of star trek 2 of course uh-huh. so it's it's an accurate statement but i don't think you can say that the whole story the whole of the whole movie wouldn't be there without star trek 2 you you could you could start off star trek 3 you could have started off star trek 3 with kirk with spock's death you know and, and taken it from there so i see it that way uh, but I do think that William Shatner does a great acting job in um, in this movie as Kirk. Kirk, as you said, goes through pain, uh, losing his son, and he gets right back up and he devises a plan to to catch the Klingons and blow up blow up the ship and kill them all. So he just gets right up and, and does the right thing to win the battle. 
Yeah, man. <clears throat> that moment where he, where Savik says, uh, Admiral, David is dead. Savik. David? Admiral, David is dead. Bring on passage, you've killed my son. You cling on bastard. And that look on Kirk's face. And now Big Sexy might have a point. I, I, Big Sexy, I will give you this. What makes that even more tragic is because we just saw in Star Trek 2 uh, where Kirk is not used to losing. Now he does lose Spock but then it's compounded in this film. Okay? So mm -hmm. without that theme in Star Trek 2, yeah, maybe it wouldn't have been impactful. I'm just I'm just trying to give you a bone here. Okay? <laughs> but when But when he hears that David died and he walks back and trips. I think that was ad libbed, or it was at, he. He had intended to sit in the chair, but I think he missed it. I think I read that in Star Trek, his uh, book, Star Trek Movie Memories. But I think you're right. I, I read the same thing. That was so perfect. And then uh, Krug says, um, "I'll give you two minutes to you and your gallant crew." And then we cut back to Kirk. The chair's turned around. We just seen the back, right? And then uh, bones. We we get close-ups of Spotty, uh, Spotty, <laughs> Scott, <laughs> Scotty, <laughs> Scotty. Close-ups of um, uh, Chekhov, right? And then the doctor uh, Bones goes back to the chair, and we see Kirk's hand come out and just grab his arm. Ah, oh. and then he swivels around. When he swivels around. That's your ass right there, dude. That is your f***ing ass. I'm looking forward to meeting you. Okay. <laughs> um, it, it, let, let me just uh, to me, th th there are a few lines in here that, um, that, th that just sum up this movie and what I'm trying to get across. When Sarek, when Sarek comes to uh, Kirk and he realizes that Kirk doesn't have the katra of, uh, of uh, Spock, Sarek says, you will find a way, Kirk. That's the theme of this movie right there. Mm. And when Kirk says, I swear it. Dude, don't f*** with Kirk. Just, <laughs> just don't f*** with Kirk. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. When Captain Kirk says, I swear it, heads are going to roll. <laughs> I swear. <laughs> And maybe I'm being prejudicial, but that one scene blows away anything I've seen on screen in any Star Trek movie. Okay, and I, I, that's just how I feel. Um, the other scene that I really love, it, it almost brings tears to a Negro's eyes. <laughs> oh, <Lord. laughs> 
is when Kirk and crew are standing on the dark bridge of the Enterprise that they've just kind of hijacked. My friends, I can't ask you to go any further. Dr. McCoy and I have to do this. The rest of you do not. Admiral, we're losing precious time. What course, please, Admiral? Mr. Scott? I'd be grateful, Admiral, if you'd give the word. My boys! That's what I'm like... See, th this is what boys are all about. Y'all don't understand. Y'all not hearing me. <laughs> that scene alone, I love that. That is what Star Trek is all about. Mm. In that one scene. That is Kirk. Kirk is, he's the captain that people are going to die for. You understand what I'm saying? Mm, they I will do. go through hell and high water for this man. I mean, they don't really have anything vested in... in uh, I mean, they love Spock, too. But it's clear Kirk is on a mission, and they're like, yo, that's my man right there. I'm riding. I'm riding with him. <laughs> and I'm just saying, this movie, to me, is one of... The, you guys can come up with other scenes. If you have other scenes that you think are better, th those scenes are encapsulate what makes Kirk... Such an icon and a legend. I know it's all in the script, but it all rings true. And you don't see that. I don't think you see that in most of the other films, at least to that degree, where these guys are going to put their commissions, their their credentials on the line because it's motherfucking Kirk. <laughs> it might be in the script, but it takes William Shatner to sell it, right? It takes William Shatner to sell it, and it takes all those years... <laughs> For, to, to buy it and you buy it and you see it I you buy it in this film in Star Trek 3 not Star Trek 2 you buy it in Star Trek 3 you see it in Star Trek 3 Big Sexy yep. the floor is yours man I got nothing you know because I'm looking <laughs> at that scene right now where they go ahead and steal the Enterprise back I do find it somewhat puzzling that four people can jack an entire starship, but you maybe, know, maybe maybe you maybe you didn't hear what I said. No, no, there, that's <laughs> he's he's the dude. This is Kirk. Even though he's looking a little chunky in this scene, though, <laughs> he is that guy. Duke, Kirk. But was... just from an operations standpoint, who's in engineering? Okay. Wait a minute. You no can you can transfer you can transfer controls from any station to any other station. So well, Scotty was on the bridge. Yeah, he's on the bridge. And, you know, James B. Sickings, like, we're just going to let these guys roll out. And how can you just go in there and... Now, the guy that Uhura, you know, conned into letting them in, he was a moron. How do oh, you my God. That was... Okay, see, I, I was going to save that for my... For, you know, for, for our little fun we were going to have with this movie. And that was on my list. That dude, oh, my God, I wanted to shoot him <laughs> the actor was horrible yes. his lines were horrible but it's damn irregular no passes no that's admiral kirk my god very good for you lieutenant but it's damn irregular no destination orders no encoded ids all true well what are we gonna do about it well, sit your ass down <laughs> i hate that guy every time i see that i cringe in his feathered hairstyle oh <laughs> That was his do back in the day, man. That oh, hairstyle, I, big sexy. What's more annoying, that hairstyle or David's uh, 
sweater in Star Trek Two. <laughs> See, Damon gets a pass only because he was Johnny Slash in Square Pegs. So that, that so he gets a pass. Did he wear did he did he wear a sweater in that? No. Okay, so he gets no pass from me. <laughs> Here okay, here's the question, real quick. I meant to look for it, uh I got distracted. We had we had postulated in an earlier show when I talked about seatbelts on the Enterprise, uh, when we talked about Star Trek Nemesis, do you remember in the Excelsior scene whether or not they, when when the captain calls for uh, preparing the transport drive, did they did they put on seatbelts? I don't believe mm, so. No, not seatbelts, but they seat their uh, the, the arms of their chairs came in. Is that so what it was? Sort of, okay. Yeah. Because yeah. I don't think we've ever seen a seatbelt on any Federation <laughs> doohickey. I mean, be it a, a large ship like the Enterprise or a smaller ship like the Defiant, I don't think I've ever seen any restraint you know, like that. When you guys, if you recall, when you first saw the film, now I'm embarrassed to say this. <laughs> I didn't even notice until a few years, within the last 15 years or so, when uh, I read something about it. I didn't even notice that between, and on the opening credits, this was back in the day when they put the opening credits on movies. That there's a big gap between one of the main actor's names and the next actor's name where um, Leonard Nimoy's name would typically go. But there's a big space in between there. And I found out only recently, within the last 15 years, is that because they didn't put Leonard Nimoy's name on purpose so as not to spoil the fact that he was coming back. Did you guys even notice that? I didn't notice that when I I I didn't in the first few years of watching this film. Yeah, oh, I didn't know when it first came out. No, no. Yeah, me too. And another thing, why didn't you know teenage Spock have a long beard and long hair if he's just growing at that exponential rate? You lose me. Yeah, well, I agree. They, they what was it? Wait, what, what's the complaint? Why didn't he have long hair and a beard? Why would he need to have a beard? If you're growing at a fast rate and no one's there to do your grooming. Your shit's oh gonna my grow. god! <laughs> I'm wrong. Am I wrong, dude? Here? Would you like to go back to 1966 to the pilot episode of Star Trek and let's let's find all of the things in science fiction that would should should not have that should happen? <laughs> why don't we never see? So why don't we never genius. see anybody go to the bathroom on the Enterprise? Don't they uh, have kidneys? You do. <laughs> you do. That's why they have waste extraction, so they do address that. But why don't we ever see them use the bathroom? That to me, that's the that's, bathroom criticism. That's poor taste, Q. Come on. Ah, uh, Craig, you're being too quiet over the man. Uh, no, no, I, I agree with Mark. It's uh, it what? was a, a it was a plot hole. They, they, they should have thought of that seriously. I mean, he's he's growing seven years every few minutes. He he needs to grow some hair. I agree with that. Maybe Vulcans. Have we ever seen? Except for the mirror universe, have we ever seen Vulcans with beards or facial hair? No, but that doesn't really tell us that they don't have it. Maybe they don't grow facial hair. Mm, Maybe. I mean, that's why didn't the length of the hair grow then? Why did the length of his hair grow? Yeah, I thought the I thought his hair did kind of grow. It it should have been shoulder length, just boom. Is that is really what you're coming at me with, dude? 
<laughs> you're stre- Mr. Fantastic will be very proud of you how you're stretching right now. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Some more info about Leonard Nimoy as the director. Uh, Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry's first reaction to the news was that, that Nimoy had been hired was that producer Harv Bennett had hired a director that he can't he couldn't fire. So Roddenberry was trying to throw some shade. Uh, Nimoy wanted the search for Spock to be operatic in scope. He said, oh, I think I already, I think we already went through this. Um, he wanted the emotions to be very large, very broad, life and death themes. And we were talking about uh, Christopher Lloyd's Klingon. Nimoy had admired Christopher Lloyd's work on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Taxi. There you go. And I was it was in that. In one, I, you know, I've never seen that movie. I have oh, oh, come I, on, I know, I know, I know, I know. I've never seen that movie. I've got to oh. watch that movie. Have you seen it, Craig? No, I have not. <laughs> oh, God. See how I, you got quiet? You, you didn't want to get called up by Big Sexy either, right? That's why you got quiet. <laughs> <laughs> um, real quick, uh, I just thought this was interesting. Uh, the, the explosion of the, of the um, Enterprise. And, Craig, I'm surprised you haven't chimed in with your signature complaint. L- l- give it to me, Craig. Let me, let me hear it about the... the, the the uh, explosion. <laughs> yeah, the very easy to guess self-destruct sequence, right? You know, I was thinking. Of course, I I thought of you when they did that. Maybe the reason it's so easy is because when you're under stress like that, you don't want to be remembering too complicated a sequence. Do you buy maybe. that? Well, maybe, but uh, it does require three of them, and I presume it's those three people to say those words, so maybe that's the failsafe. Wow, that's a breakthrough. Wow. I feel like Sigmund Freud. Okay, <laughs> crickets, crickets. All right, wow. If not Sigmund Freud, maybe uh, Sidney Friedman from MASH. Okay, I don't know who that is. Okay, crickets. He was a shrink, a recurring character. Wait a minute. Was he was he the guy that was dealing with uh, who was the guy that was dressed in drag all the time? That's Klinger. Right, but was he was he counseling that guy? Uh, sometimes, yeah. Okay, all this stuff's gonna get cut out anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, uh, one of our crew members had to beam off the ship. I he was just talking too crazy for me. I had to send him back to uh, Rigel Four for <laughs> for indoctrination. <laughs> So Big Sexy has left the starship. But um, I just wanted to point out a few other things about Nimoy and things that I strongly agree with. Uh, Nimoy wrote that the search for Spock's major theme is that a friendship, what should a person do to help a friend, how deeply should a friendship commitment go, and what sacrifices, what obstacles will these people endure? That's the emotion line of the film and its reasons for existence. And I can't agree with him more he says he wanted the emotions to be very large um now here's this is interesting craig let me get your take on this brown university professor ross s kramer argues that the search for spock became star trek's first and most obvious exploration of christian themes of sacrificial salvific death and resurrection according to larry j kreitzer the wrath of khan provided its own versions of good friday and a hint of the easter sunday to come with the hints fulfilled by Spock's bodily restoration in the search for Spock. David and Savick's discovery of Spock's empty coffin and burial robes parallels the evidence the apostles found 
that pointed to Jesus's resurrection in the Gospel of Luke, asserts Kramer. I never went that deep into it. I, you know what? I never really saw it that way, but it makes sense. What do you think about that? No, it doesn't make sense. Yes, wow. I, I understand what he's saying, but I'm quite sure that when that story was written, no, no one was thinking of Jesus. That's that's I'm I'm sure of it. It, it. You can always draw parallels between two stories or two ideas, but I'm sorry, I don't think the search for spark and wrath of Khan have anything to do with the Bible whatsoever. Interesting, interesting. Okay, all right. So, Grant, let me let me ask you, if if, if I may, uh, with your take on that. Do are you would you consider yourself to be a strong um, follower of Christianity or any religion? I I wouldn't say so. Okay, you I would think... say that it's uh, it's it's a great thing that most people that people want to believe uh, rather than just thinking of you know, the the factual truth. They rather believe a story makes them feel better. Hmm. But uh, no, I'm not, I'm not really a follower. Yeah, I'm not either. So it's interesting. I mean, it seems I, I, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, it seems clear, but th I guess what I disagree with this professor is that I don't think it was a conscious effort. Subconscious, maybe. But mm. I, I do tend to agree. I don't think they he says obvious exploration of Christianity. <laughs> right. I don't, I don't think I, I mean, it's just science fiction. And maybe yeah. science fiction at its heart has a lot of human human themes and one of those themes is religion but i don't think it was obvious I, yeah I, and yeah i don't think yeah exactly i mean first of all the the christian beliefs don't believe that jesus was stuck in someone's body for a while and then had to be put back in his own body and the stories <laughs> are just too far apart really they are they really are too far apart hmm. all right so um just wanted to have a little bit of fun like we did with star trek 2 and nemesis Tell me if you agree or disagree or in, if you've noticed anything as well. But um, is it me or do Klingon women just like showing off their cleavage? <laughs> because you know the scene I'm talking about, right? Yeah. I think as a, as a high school kid watching this film... <laughs> I was like, no, don't don't kill Valkyries. What are you crazy? <laughs> look at those. I mean, look at her. <laughs> I think they do. It's just part of their culture. I wow, wow, yeah. 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 And you know, the other thing is, um, since I'm already gonna be <laughs> accused of being misogynistic for saying that, let's just let's just go deeper. Was it me or was Ahura's makeup just horrible in this movie? Hmm. I don't think I paid that much attention to it, so I, I can't comment on that. Even though I just saw the movie a few hours ago, I don't necessarily remember. I mean, she yeah. look, her whoever did the makeup, she does, she looks wooden or she looks plastic in this movie, <laughs> way too much. I mean, I, I don't mean to be insulting, but Nichelle Nichols, she, I don't know how old she was in this role, but she's a beautiful woman. You, you don't need, need to plaster the makeup on like that. Mm. So, it, it was distracting to me. If you if you look at the um, if you look at the uh, the artwork that I'm going to put up for this show, I put in the corner uh, a picture of her looking kind of sarcastic. It's a still <laughs> shot from it's a still shot from the scene where she's looking at that lieutenant guy that that lieutenant who's we were talking about who's a bad actor. Mm. And she looks up out of the corner of her eye. The makeup looks really frightening. But you know, and actually, I had a thought about that guy too. Is 
yes, he, he was a bad actor, but I believe what the what they were going for is that if you remember, she's taken on this post, which is in this old dilapidated part of the space station, and you know it's the the graveyard shift or whatever, and 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 he is this young naive you know lieutenant sure. and i think he's supposed to be playing that he's this really naive guy and he's got this really crappy job as he makes his way up the ranks but he's still a uh, wet behind the ears and i think that's the way he's trying to play it and and i think what they intended it to be yeah, but he just didn't act it as well as he should have no i think that's yeah when he says maybe that's good for you you know <laughs> someone whose career is winding down yeah. Oh God! <laughs> Here's another question: yeah. When uh, Chekhov notifies Kirk that there's a signal coming from Spock's quarters, and he goes down there with the two security guards, and oh, God, those uniforms for the security guards are so funny looking to me. <laughs> Terrible, I know. Um, why do why are they there with their phaser rifles ready to go, but then they allow Kirk to walk in alone, and they don't follow him in? <laughs> I was thinking that exact same thing when I when I watched it again. Now I thought to myself, these t- <laughs> exactly exactly what you said. You Kirk just steps in. Ah, oh, cool. Everything's cool. <laughs> sure, not, I'm, no one's going to kill me. We don't know. We don't know what's in there. We just know it's a life form. But I'm just going to step in. No problem. Yeah. Right. All right. So another one. Why do you think that in this, when the Klingons are looking at um, the Genesis the Genesis presentation? Rather than seeing Carol Marcus, we have it's being done by Kirk at this point. Yeah, that is strange, isn't it? Now, is from it? a practical standpoint, I wonder if it's just because they didn't want to pay Carol, uh, the actress, B.B. Besh, I think her name was. They didn't want to pay her. They would probably have to pay for her likeness. Oh. Mm, I just thought they probably did it because otherwise the... Uh, the Klingons wouldn't have known that it was Kirk, and they wouldn't have got all upset about it. Hmm. You know, so. I guess, because yeah, they would, I mean, I think whether it was Kirk or Marcus or not, they would still want that Genesis device. I think they came across, it was, it, I hear what you're saying, but I don't know if it would have mattered if it was Kirk, because the Klingon bird of prey meets up with Kirk by happenstance, right? Mm, yeah, they're, they're just sure. to grab the. They're, they're just to grab the Genesis device. Yeah, you're right. I don't know. And I was going to say, saw, yeah. when I saw the bird of prey again, you know, you know, we were just recently talking about discovery and how the Klingon ships don't look anything like them. Right. I was so it was so great to see right. a proper Klingon ship show up on screen as opposed to whatever the hell they showed on Discovery. I'm going to miss that good. so much. <laughs> but you know, one of the cool things I always I always remember about the original Star Trek movies is the they have a specific tune that they play um when the cling when those battle cruisers show up yeah it's very uh, you know what percussive I mean? it's very ching 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 dun 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 yeah. dun yeah well done Valtris. well done what the hell is shot whip it's shoot ha
Very, yeah. very cool. I love it. This is yeah. sort of that, that signature mark of the Klingon ship appearing or decloaking and stuff like that. That's actually, you bring up a good point about the soundtrack. There's some really interesting cues in this soundtrack. Um, when uh, when um, Krug is telling his new gunner, just aim for their engines. Do not kill them. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's this weird, it's, it's, it's kind of brilliant. It's this weird uh, horn uh, motif that you've never heard before in Star Trek. And it's like, it's so good. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Um, I do. I just think in general, though, the the music for this for this particular Star Trek movie was just brilliant. It was yeah. so majestic. It really was. It's one of those brilliantly composed scores of music for for a movie it just makes it it takes it to the next level it makes it sound so grand it's amazing yeah because i tell you that that whole sequence where kirk is stealing the enterprise the music for that if you i don't know if you have the soundtrack to this i have well i'm not gonna brag but i have all the soundtracks to all of the tos films that's cool if you just listen to the music it's like you can see you close your eyes it's like you're watching the film and that whole sequence is brilliantly scored. scene where the Excelsior is getting ready to take off after Kirk and he calls for the trans warp drive it's this really almost jungle like And you hear this percussion, I'm like, wow. I mean, mm. this, you hear things in this soundtrack that you don't hear in any of the other soundtracks, which which to me just adds to what makes this film so unique. It um, does, definitely. Now, let me ask you, I don't know, I meant to check out Star Trek Four before doing the sh- before we uh, hop on the show. Is this the last time we hear this particular opening thing, or do they use it in Star Trek Four as well? Oh, I don't remember. I really don't. In fact, I don't remember what the opening for Star Trek Two was. I remember the, the original uh, motion picture. The music from that eventually, well, just essentially became the beginning of Star Trek Next Generation TV show, series. Well, the opening, the the opening theme for this movie is the same as um, Star Trek Two. Oh uh, yes, that's right. It's the same mm. here. Oh no, no, wait, no. This is um, no. They don't play this theme. Uh, they don't use this theme for Star Trek IV: Voyage Home. It is a different theme. Uh, it's it's uh, it's still kind of it's it's cool, but it has a little bit more of a playful feel to it. A light feel to it. Um, but so that means that um, the the main theme that we hear in Star Trek Three, 
that this is the last time we hear that they use it in Star Trek 2 and Star Trek 3 this film but then they changed it for Star Trek 4 which is which is interesting so four films and three different themes and then we get a new another theme for Star Trek 6 so interesting how they uh change the music uh, so frequently kind of like the uniforms but anyway actually the beginning of this film uses this same music at the end of Star Trek 2 if you notice at the beginning of this we have that very soft uh, soft-spoken music and then we hear um, Leonard Nimoy doing the the mantra space the final mm -hmm. frontier so mm -hmm. it's like they end the, the beginning of this movie is the uses the same music as the end and the same tone is the end of star trek 2 which to me just added to the this is the movie where you're gonna we're gonna make you think it's not gonna be all action but it, but it's gonna be it's more contemplative and more reflective in tone mm. okay but having said all that we get to <laughs> I'd, I'd love to hear your take on this the graphics <laughs> mm -hmm. the graphics when they're going into trans war remember that <laughs> oh yes and the graphics when they set the uh, the destruct sequence. Uh, you know the funny thing is is that the uh, I didn't mind it. Really? The destruct the destruct sequence, I didn't mind it. It's just for some reason in my mind it fits the time or uh, I, d I don't know. I didn't mm. mind it too much. But there was another thing I noticed that made me think of you is because it was the complaint that you had about Star Trek, uh, Space Seed. Did you notice mm -hmm. that Krug says something like when uh, John Larroquette, let's also mention John Larroquette is a, is a Klingon in this, which is brilliant. Uh, he's the other kind of cameo guest star. He says, um, Krug says, uh, form a compliment and beam down and uh, take over the ship. And he says, um, but sir, the number is 10. Though. We are Klingons. <laughs> Go there and grab Genesis from Kirk's memory, from this Enterprise memory banks, mm, and I thought right. of you. <laughs> memory now, banks, yeah. I mean, it, I think it's they were. I think they were just carrying the term over from what they used to use in the original series, because in the original series they used to use that term memory banks. Right. And and actually in the '60s, that's exactly how memory was. It was in huge big banks um, because it was so massive. So. When they made the original Star Trek, it, it was actually technically correct, and um, but of course by the time the movies come out, everybody's using microcomputers and tiny memory. But uh, they, I think they just carried it forward. <laughs> but by the time this film was made, were they was Memory Bank still the the proper nomenclature? No, not really. Uh, even though uh, technically you could say that memory still comes in banks, mm -hmm. but they are um, much smaller. Okay. Uh, in your computer, then. so you know you have like bank one and bank two, and well, bank zero, bank one, bank two, etc. In your computer, when you add memory. Okay. All so, right. Yeah. Just so you just you, you just wouldn't call it that. I mean, if you were talking, you would just say get it from the computer. <laughs> you know. Right. Nowadays, you're talking about right. Yeah. 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 Get it from your hard drive. I don't know. But just a couple more. Um, I was gonna make the note that this movie kind of establishes immortality, which was a problem for me, but then. Looking at this film, I, I kind of picked up on the fact that um, I was thinking that maybe that's why Vulcans are so long-lived, because they keep switching. They keep saving their bodies when they die and transfer, transferring their katra back into their body from someone else. 
No, I don't think so because right. when Spock does it, the high priestess says that nobody's done this for right that they can't remember. It's you know, it's, it's only a myth or something like that. So. And it, but then I was also thinking that the Genesis device could also be a method of immortality, but they kind of cover their tracks with that by saying that um, it doesn't work. Right. So, yeah. He uses he uses some. Uh, what do you call it? Protomatter, yeah, yeah. But who's to say that they wouldn't continue to experiment and create it again if it meant if the stakes were we can live forever? Uh, yeah, I think I think you're right. Somebody could probably tell that story because if, uh, Starfleet would definitely want to tweak the Genesis project. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the next one I have on my list is um, I love how this movie makes the mistake that a lot of movies make even today. When Kirk is reviewing the the records, the, the video log of what happened in engineering, you notice how engineering must have a crew of videographers <laughs> that they use as surveillance cameras because they yeah. know exactly when to zoom in, when to cut. <laughs> I know you're right. And you're, you're totally right that everybody still does that. And, and I, that's always bugged me, actually, always. So I mean, throughout my life, I've always been bugged by the fact that when they show security footage, um, they don't show it from the perspective of where the camera's probably sitting in the roof pointing down or something. Right. They always show, essentially, <laughs> just show the same shots they would show if they were shooting a movie. I know. Stupid. Right, right. And now, here's, here's a question I want to ask you, and we, it might I don't want to debate it too long. <laughs> But we all know that every seven years, Vulcan males experience Ponfar. Yeah. Ponfar means that the Vulcan has burning blood. And to assuage that, that malady, they have to mate with a Vulcan female. Mm. Right? Yep. So does that mean seven-year-olds are having sex on Vulcan? <laughs> Uh yeah, I know what you mean. And also, did that does it mean that he he was uh, doing the nasty with Savic and we just didn't see it? Yeah. Well, see, ah, I'm a little hesitant to go there, Greg. <laughs> but here's the thing: uh, Savic comes up on Spock and says it has begun, and she says that to him when he looks a lot older than seven. Mm. So, is it possible that at the age of seven you don't have? You don't have to go through Palm Far, but maybe it starts when it's when you're 14. He looks like he could be 14. Mm, maybe you're right. But even then, it's a little unseemly. <laughs> that. What do you think? Do you think she actually did the do with Spock? Not when he was seven, but maybe when he was, uh, you know, technically much older than that. No, nah, I'm, I'm only, I'm only kidding. I'm sure, I'm sure <laughs> that she just did the finger swapping things. Him, swapping things <laughs> like swapping yeah. bodily fluids okay yeah. remember that thing where they did the two fingers yeah, and they were yeah. stroking each other's fingers yeah and it somehow calmed them down maybe maybe okay <laughs> i could take that another interesting thing to note just quickly is that uh bones's dad his name is the same name as kirk's son david who is the keeper of the contra i am McCoy, Leonard H., son of David. I don't know if that was a coincidence or if that was written on purpose, but it's interesting nonetheless. And the last thing 
I just love the fact that Starfleet headquarters has this room or has this bar that looks like the Admiral's Club in the in, in the airport. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know what you mean. Uh all right, so Craig, unless you have anything else to add to why Star Trek Three is possibly better than Star Trek Two, <laughs> I don't. What did you? Did I convince you? What did you uh, end up on that? I would say that Star Trek Three should not be overlooked as a bad movie because it's not a bad movie. It's okay. an excellent movie. Okay. I don't know if it's better than Wrath of Khan. I don't know if Wrath of Khan is better than Star Trek Three. They're completely different stories. Mm-hmm. They're very, very different movies. So they could be equally as good as each other but for t- completely different reasons star trek 2 is an action more of an action movie and star trek 3 i believe is more of an emotional movie yes there's many many more emotions and and deep uh deep emotions going on in, in star trek 3 i think that was very well said i don't so i i didn't convince you but i think that was a very very fair and compromising analysis uh respect okay and well, thank you. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're getting a transmission. Um, I think we need to set a course for DS9. I think I'm hearing that there's a bar fight in Quartz involving Big Sexy. Jeez, this guy. He's going he's gonna to kill very, me. Very possible. <laughs> okay. But ladies and gentlemen, um, before we go, before we <laughs> set maximum warp to get over to DS9, um, do me a favor. Let me know how you feel. Am I off my rocker thinking that Star Trek 3 should even be considered better than Star Trek 2? Let us know what you think. You can email us at redshirtspodcast at gmail.com. You can tweet us at redshirts1701. Go on our Facebook page, Red Shirts, a Star Trek podcast. But first and foremost, what I want you to do. Oh, you can also go to our Tumblr page and search us under Red Shirts. But first and foremost... Go to iTunes, subscribe, and most importantly, please leave a review and a rating. That will help us rise up above all of those other Star Trek podcasts. And I can tell you, the three of us, you're not going to hear the same things from us. We're going to bring a different perspective because we're older guys. We love this thing. We we probably know more about Star Trek than a lot of these people because of our ages. No offense, Craig. (laughs) Speak for yourself. Right, yeah. Between Age, the, we feel beauty. Between the three of us, we've got to combine 150 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. So thank you for your support. Please continue to support. Go ahead and go to iTunes right now. Leave that rating and review. And we will see you next time. Peace. Red Shirts is not endorsed by Paramount Pictures, Viacom, or CBS. It is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Star Trek, the Star Trek logo, and all names, pictures, and audio of Star Trek characters are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective trademark and or copyright holders.